Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I am joined today by Dr. Ian Smith, American physician, author, and television host, best known for hosting The Doctors. In 2007, he launched the 50 Million Pound Challenge, a national weight loss initiative sponsored by CBS and State Farm. He's also made appearances on VH1 Celebrity Fit Club, The View, and has been a correspondent for NBC News. He joins me today to discuss his newest book called The Metflex Diet, which I have here, and it's really, really some great stuff in there to help us kind of get that bulge under control. So Dr. Ian, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to join you. Yes, my pleasure, sir. So first, before we get into the actual book itself, just about you, because you've had such a great rise from being a physician to being a television personality. And since we are sort of a career observation for so many people of like maybe what they might want to do in life, I'm curious, were you always interested in medicine or is that something that kind of happened along your journey? Yeah, I've always been interested in medicine. I was a very curious kid. I loved science. I loved dissecting things. So biology was definitely my thing. But I also loved the art of medicine. I loved the idea that doctors could take something that seemed mysterious to patients and research and understand what was going on and then offer some type of treatment. And I thought that being able to fix other people's problems in that capacity was very attractive and very powerful too. And so I liked the idea of being a doctor. There were no black doctors where I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. But that didn't stop me from dreaming that I, too, could achieve reaching MD status. And so it's always been a dream of mine. I wanted to be a physician. I wanted to help people. I wanted to make people feel better and lead better lives, longer lives and better quality lives. Mm. It's interesting, too, with your story. One thing that I drew a parallel to, which is, and you just sort of tapped into it, which is not being limited in your dreams of what you want to accomplish, And for so many children of color, Black children specifically of a certain generation, there may not have been examples, for example, on TV to have shown us that as a career. So my mother went to nursing school. She didn't complete it. She ended up going into education. But she was inspired by the TV show Julia with Diane Carroll. And she even named me Corey. Like, that's how serious it was after, (laughs) you know. But it's an example of, like, dreaming beyond your borders and inspiration happens when you can see others in it. So I'm certain that you are inspiring young Black men to become doctors. So that's a great legacy as well for you to bring forward. So thank you for that. Well, I hope so. I tell my kids all the time that we looked at history books, never saw a Black president, Black secretary of state, vice president, didn't even see Black congresspeople, really. We had to really be aspirational in our vision of what we too wanted to achieve, despite the fact that in our face, were all kinds of messages and subliminal signals that we could not achieve these things. We had to overcome that and overpower that and still dare to dream. And I think that's extremely telling of my generation. This generation now and the generation before it have been very lucky 
to have African-Americans to be in very visible positions and to have their success be very visible. But I still think that it's important for those in my generation to put ourselves out there because hopefully we can continue to inspire others. And I'm hoping that throughout my career, which has been very gratifying to me personally, I'm hoping that I have inspired people to become doctors, to become nurses, healthcare professionals, writers, authors, TV person, whatever it is that people can see in me themselves. I hope that I've been able to inspire that. Yes. Wow. Well, I think you have, and I know you will continue to do so in the work you're doing, which includes even helping people be healthier just in their day to day, not even just for the bigger complex medical issues, but in your book, as I was mentioning called the Metflex diet, what I love about it is that it's not pills and potions. It's not trying to sell this new thing, this new celebrity fad. You mentioned science, which is interesting because and tell me if I'm off the mark, really what you're doing with this book is breaking down the science behind why and how we gain weight, how the food metabolizes. It's really something that I think if we had a better understanding of that, we'd make better choices in life in general. So, I mean, tell me how you see it. Is that an assessment that it's pretty fair in how I'm seeing this? Yeah, for sure. I always take a scientific approach to my health books and back my books up with science. And I want people to understand that there is a true science behind weight loss, number one. Number two, the concept in the book that I'm discussing and hopefully introducing to a lot of people is something called metabolic flexibility, which is a mouthful, but something I didn't know myself. I was trying to research. So many people were sending me messages on Instagram and Facebook asking me, why was it that they were eating better, they were moving and exercising better, but they still couldn't lose weight? And I really didn't have the answer for that. And I came across this term called metabolic flexibility, which basically means the body's ability to burn two of the major fuel sources that we have, carbs and fats. Some people can burn carbs really well and not fats. Others can burn fats really well and not carbs. That condition in which you can only burn one of those fuel sources efficiently is a level of metabolic inflexibility. And what we want is flexibility. It's akin to, for example, a hybrid car. A hybrid car has a battery and gas. And when the battery runs out, the gas kicks in, the car keeps moving. That hybrid car is metabolically flexible because it can use whatever fuel source is available. Opposed to a gasoline-powered car, where once the gas is out, the car stops until you put more gas in there. That car is metabolically inflexible. So the bad news is that most of us are metabolically inflexible, which is why many of us are unable to lose weight efficiently, even when we're doing the right thing. The metabolism is stuck. What we want to be is like the hybrid car. Whatever fuel source is available at the time, we want to be able to burn it and use it. The fuel source that we need to use, those fuel sources are fats and carbs. This is a six-week program that exposes people to both carbs and fats and some intermittent fasting, and a little bit of short-term keto. It's called cyclical keto, where you cycle in and out of keto, very short. It introduces all these concepts to get people's metabolism switched, let's call it, unstuck, and then people start losing weight. And why that's important too for us, especially as a leadership podcast, we talk so much about soft skills that people have that they need to be successful, like empathy and compassion and 
being able to communicate well. And we don't talk enough about what I just was realizing in preparing for this interview was like, if you're not well enough physically in yourself, you're not really going to be optimal to be able to lead others in general, right? And that translates, I think, in our everyday lives. Like if you're not taking care of your health, you can't really physically be the best you can be to go out there in the world and be successful. There's a direct correlation, I think, between those things. I just gave a talk to a women's diversity organization the other week. And the premise of my talk was that if you don't take care of yourself, and these are for women in particular, who tend to be the guardians of our health and other things in our household, I said to them, if you don't take care of your health and yourself first, then you are compromised and not at the best level you can be in order to help and do other things that you need to do for the other people that you're working with. So we have to take care of ourselves. We tend to neglect our health because everything else seems more important, money, school, jobs, relationships, but really your health is your wealth. I've spent my career trying to get people to understand that while there are some things that are not in your control from a health perspective, there's a lot of ownership and control that you have of your health destiny. And so in my programs, I really try to empower people to feel like they can control what's going to happen in their health to make a difference. And you do that because even as I was saying, how nothing that you're asking people to be aware of in this book is out of the realm of something that can be done if you just put a little bit of reading in, understanding, and then time to exercise, right? I mean, there's like a lot of things that we know what we should be doing, but we don't do them. And that's a great point about women specifically. I just had a woman who messaged me through Facebook after she saw some post and she began to tell me in a private message about how she's taking care of everybody and she hasn't even had a chance to go and do a self-care day like in three years or something. I said, well, sister, you are really overdue because- you're about to crack. And then what will those people do? If you want to be a caregiver for everyone, that's great. But if you're not taking care of you, that's probably going to end not well for you and them. But you talk about also, which is a lot, a high number, 500 metabolic disorders that we all kind of have collectively. So you mentioned earlier about like, we have these concerns about not being able to do the metabolic flexibility. But then I wonder, like, what is the reason for that? Is it because we just are a society that overconsumes? We don't exercise enough? Or is it a multiple range of causes? Why are we in this position? It's a combinatorial situation. There are different things that cause us to have metabolic disease and metabolic inflexibility. Bad sleep, bad diet, being too sedentary, eating too many processed foods. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why we have these met- obesity, why we have these metabolic disorders. A lot of people are suffering from metabolic disorders and don't even know it. Diabetes, for example, is an example of a metabolic disorder. So there are a lot of disorders, some of them very rare, you won't see very often, but there are situations where people's metabolism or their ability to metabolize things is very far off, and that leads to illness and unfortunately chronic illness. People have to understand that there are basic fundamental things that the body needs to do or the body needs to function at peak performance. The body needs good nutrition, so it needs proper nutrients in the form of vitamins, minerals, protein, fats, carbs, and other phytonutrients or plant nutrients. The body needs to move. The body is built to move. 
When you don't move the body, the body breaks down on a cellular level, which is a really small level. And then it grows from a cellular level to a macro level. So it first starts with your cellular breakdown. And then all of a sudden you have macro breakdown, which for example, your joints start hurting. That is a example of a macro breakdown where you actually can see the manifestation of your body breaking down. And also stress. Stress is a big part also. People are very stressed out about a lot of things and you have to find ways to reduce your stress. You have to find ways to avoid stress-inducing situations if possible. Obviously, it's not always avoidable, but you can. So it's a multifactorial situation as to why people experience and suffer from metabolic syndromes. Yeah. And especially you bring up now societal stuff in a way like that's things around us. This is like one of the most tumultuous times I recall in my life, just in general, whether it be political divide or whatever the situations may be. And it's a lot to take in. And I think it's easier for us to sometimes just say, you know, I'm going to just sit here with this box of donuts and (laughs) not move. But that is dangerous. And so we have to not do that. And that's when you talk about nutrition, I think is important. I became more conscious recently of reading labels. And once you do that a couple of times, it is really eye-opening. Like there's no reason why like I go get a, I don't know, a bag of what I think is like sort of like air-baked potato chips. And there's like a paragraph of stuff I can't even understand of how it's been prepared. And so I don't think people are really knowledgeable about nutrition. So when you say nutrition, you mean just make sure you're educated in what proper nutrition is, which would be avoiding saturated fats or like, what would you say would be that kind of formula for healthy nutrition? Well, first of all, I think that there should be a requisite number of years that students need to take nutrition. There should be nutrition through several years between, you know, maybe upper grammar to middle to high school. There should be nutrition. Nutrition is fundamental to a lot of the medical afflictions and diseases that we are seeing now that are affecting, unfortunately, disproportionately African-Americans and now affecting our young. We see young people with high blood pressure. We never saw or rarely saw young people with high blood pressure, but the rates of high blood pressure and obesity in young people has skyrocketed over the last 15 years. So we need to actually mandate and add into the core curriculum of elementary and middle and high school uh, nutritional And what you said is really poignant, which is that everyone should know how to read a label. Reading a nutrition, I'm telling you, if you could get more people to be proficient at reading a nutrition label, then they would make better decisions, not always, but more often they would make better decisions about which products they purchased and what type of ingredients they put into their bodies. And that alone, The translation from reading a label to making a good decision to enacting that decision through whatever you decide to ultimately purchase and ingest, that decision alone, that decision tree could probably eliminate 30% of diseases and obesity and all other kinds of things that come that are born from bad nutritional choices. Just making that one difference, by the way. But- We have to invest. We have to be proponents of this type of education and not look at it as kind of extraneous or extra. This has to be looked at as core. It's essential. 
it's great that you brought that up because it's very similar to when I've had financial experts on there. We talk about financial wealth and financial health and how that should also be right alongside, I think now that you mentioned nutrition, that should be one of those things that it begins like maybe second, third grade, <laughs> you know, and it continues until the person graduates because you're right. I mean, we end up getting out of high school and maybe there was a segment in our health class that talked about the basic food groups or, and then you kind of move on to whatever the next chapter is in the, in the health books. And so we really are completely inadequate when we graduate high school, going out into the world of understanding how our own bodies works. At that point, you're like 18 years old. So you don't even know what your body needs really to maintain optimal performance. Do you see any sort of movement happening where people are starting to, school systems are beginning to incorporate that more into their curriculums or do we have a long way to go with that? I'm unaware. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I personally am unaware if there is that type of movement that's happening. There could be that kind of movement on a micro level, but I think we need it more on a macro level. It needs to be more of a national kind of mandate whereby we have health literacy and financial literacy. And I'm telling you that particularly for young African-Americans who may be in a household that does not have good financial literacy and good health literacy, this would at least be a place that families can start turning the tide of this kind of transgenerational gap of health intelligence and financial intelligence. And when you look at the trajectory for young African-Americans compared to others, when you look at their life trajectory, the career trajectory, the financial trajectory, health trajectories, I'm telling you that if as younger people, they were educated in a more comprehensive manner about these particular topics, then a lot of the gaps that we see between the races would close. Majority students are more likely, not always, but they are more likely to be living in a household where the adults in the house have a sufficient degree of knowledge of health and finances. So when you look at the parental level, there's such a gap in that health literacy and that financial literacy that two kids being otherwise equal, growing up in these two different houses with one set of parents having great literacy, the other set of parents not having great literacy, and then there be no other source for the kids to get this information. Schools aren't really doing it. So there's really no other source unless these kids are independently aggressive about going online and learning, but let's say that doesn't happen. Well. Now you see the problem. Now you see how one set of kids already have a leg up on the other set and not a leg up because they're doing better in school, but a leg up because at home they're being taught about the stock market and investments and how to save and how sometimes even if you want the most expensive thing, that's okay to have the less expensive of the items. These are decisions and thought processes that young people can learn and would actually benefit them before they go to college. It would benefit them before college where they start having a little bit of savings. And for example, we were getting something to eat and there was a kid working at a drive-thru and he had a Louis Vuitton belt on or he was holding a Louis Vuitton belt. And one of my kids, I was very happy, said, why would he want a Louis Vuitton belt? Like, who cares? 
<laughs> right, right. That's the kind of answer or the kind of commentary that I'm happy my kids make, but I'd like other kids to make that commentary. And I'm, this is not against Louis Vuitton. It's not against brand names. Right, right, right. Right. But in general, the ability for our young people to make analyses and evaluations and to discern, like, is it really worth, if you got $250, you want to take $250 and buy a Louis Vuitton belt, or is there another use for it? Maybe you get a belt that's only 75 bucks and save the other 175 for something else. That's the kind of thought processes I think we need to start helping our kids to learn how to make. That's a great parallel there because just like nutrition and finance is directly parallel because we make those poor decisions when we're young and then you what happens? You get older, you got no savings and your body's a mess. Your joints hurt. The payoff on both examples is a very negative thing because you didn't have that information growing up. And that's pretty startling to think about. And I know for me, it was really funny. I got a credit card as a teenager my mom had a great job. We, you know, I was a middle class. We were fine as a single parent. She's great. So it wasn't like we didn't have the money, but she gave me a credit card and she said, don't run this credit card up. But she didn't have a discussion about what an APR was. So I had no idea. I just knew I can go into Lord and Taylor and give them a card <laughs> and walk out with my stuff. And I did that enough till like the bill was like $5,000 and she tried to kill me. You know, my mom was like, are you kidding me? But the conversation, you bring it up in the homes when it comes to nutrition and finance, if those conversations, if we don't have those role models in the home who have that knowledge, that is something that I think is overlooked in a lot of these scenarios when we examine why society looks this way or that way. It's generationally inadequate with the education. So I hope people who are listening and watching understand and are now hopefully inspired to educate themselves and learn now about what they're putting in their bodies and whatnot. Now, speaking of that, dispelling some myths. One of the myths is that, well, I'm not sure if it's a myth, but it's said often that after 30, your metabolism slows down. That's sort of like the go-to for so you can all explain why we can't close our pants anymore so easily. <laughs> At least that's the one I use anyway. So, But you say that's not really the case? Well, I don't say it. The research says it. So let me just say, in point of honesty, I, for a long time, also believed, based on what the research was made public, was that at the age of 30, that people's metabolism basically started falling off of a cliff. <laughs> That's and it. And it started yeah. slowing down. And so we taught yeah. that for years. What, be careful. When you get to 30, everything stops. Well, new research shows, and this is why I wrote the Metflex diet, new research shows that actually between the ages of 20 and 60, your metabolism speed is relatively stable. It's not until about the age of 60 that your metabolism starts slowing down about 0.7% per year. So everyone who has said for years, the reason why I can't lose weight and why I'm gaining weight is because my metabolism is too slow. It's slowed way down. Well, for some people, that might be true. But for a lot of people, their metabolism really hasn't changed that much. What I think now, after learning about metabolic flexibility, is I think that people are not burning the fuels that they eat in the form of food efficiently. And that's why people are not burning carbs well. They're not burning fats well. So if you're not a good carb burner and you sit down to a plate of pasta or a pizza, guess what's going to happen? You're not going to process it efficiently. You're going to hold on to that energy and those calories and end up gaining weight. I think that a lot of people are having problems on the scale, not because their metabolism is too slow, 
but because their metabolism is inflexible. And even worse, if you do have a slow metabolism and you have an inflexible metabolism, now you have a double whammy. Your book is a program in, in many ways to burn better fuel and burn more fat as you just sort of laid out there. But how do you do it? Give me the summary of like, what does that mean? Does that mean more exercise? If I'm not burning enough of one thing, that means I have to become more active. We mentioned being sedentary as a problem, right? So where do we begin? I'll give you the thing. So it's exercise, intermittent fasting, cyclical ketosis, and sleep. So sleep is easy. People don't sleep enough. People need to sleep more. They need better quality of sleep, and they need to improve their sleep environment. Exercise doesn't mean you need to belong to a gym, though gyms are fine. I love gyms. But people are not exercising enough. In the book, I make it very easy. You don't need a gym membership. I give you exercise illustrations and instructions. If you did between 20 and 30 minutes, about four days a week, then you're going to be in great shape. And you can even break up the exercise, a morning session and an afternoon session. So take 20 minutes, do 10 in the morning, 10 at night. Or if it's a 30-minute recommendation that day, do 15 and 15. So exercise is essential. Then something called intermittent fasting, which is periods of eating and periods of fasting where you're not eating. That is very helpful. There are three different types of intermittent fasting that we do in the book. The one I just mentioned where you have an eating period and a fasting period, that's called TRF or time-restricted feeding. But there's also the 5-2 method where you have five days of relatively normal eating, two days of low-calorie eating. That's the 5-2 method. And then there's the alternate day fast where you have one day of normal eating followed by about a 500-calorie day and you keep alternating. And all three of those are in the book that people can read and understand better. But IF or intermittent fasting is the third component. And the last component is something called cyclical keto, where you do short-term keto. I'm not a big proponent of long-term keto. I don't think it's a healthy thing to do for the long-term. But short-term keto is what research shows. And basically, you have a short period of keto followed by carb loading. Short keto followed by carb loading. That, and in the book, I do two weeks of carb loading first with protein, and then we do the cyclical keto where we're in and out of keto for four weeks. That is extremely helpful and very useful. And so those are the four elements that I use in the Metflex diet plan. And let me tell you something. People have done great. I have a Facebook group and people who are watching and or listening should join the group. It's the name of the book, Metflex Diet. And I'm in that group helping people every day. I do two free coaching Zoom sessions every week. We got 16,000 people doing it together. But the average weight loss is 14 to 16 pounds in six weeks. Some people have lost up to 24, 25 pounds in six weeks. And the average fat loss is about eight to 10 inches. Please, if you are someone who has struggled and you can't get that number on the scale to move or you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels, because those have been lowered also with the plan, please join our Facebook group, Netflix Diet. Also, you can send me some questions on Instagram. I answer my own DMs. My Instagram is at Dr. Ian Smith. Spell the doctor out. That's amazing. And I love that you get to eat. You're not selling like a starvation plan. That's another one of those traps that like these quote unquote diets, that word has this negative stigma because people associate it with like not eating at all and starving yourself. Even when I have done intermittent fasting, there is eating involved. I was able to eat, but there's just a window in which I don't. I don't starve myself 24 hours a day because that would be insane. But I love that you shared that. And thanks. We definitely will make sure everyone knows about the group on Facebook, you said, right? Yes. On Uh Facebook. 
thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.